Well, I trust you've been enjoying, benefiting from our time in worship. Let's pray together as we prepare to open the word of God together. Father, you are almighty. You have all power, all strength. You are a never-ending source of strength to your people. And Lord God, we feel in this time of pandemic, especially the need, the great need for your strength for our daily lives, uh, strength for our physical bodies, strength for our mental health, strength for our spiritual journey. And so Lord, we're asking you to provide that strength. And as we open your word, as we eat of your word, feast on it, Lord God, I pray that you would give us sustenance by your word and strength by your word. I pray these things in Jesus' name and help us to glorify you and honor you in the preaching, but especially in the hearing and doing of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, I was 20 years old. It was a cold February night, and I was sitting in my Chev Malibu. It was my first car, Chev Malibu wagon, 1980. I was sitting in that Chev Malibu in a parking lot in Woodbridge, Ontario, staring, shell-shocked, at a nondescript chain-link fence. I had just walked to my car from an evangelistic church service where I had received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. At that moment, there was a deep recognition that my life had turned a corner, that my life would not be the same anymore. Up to that moment, my entire direction in life had been self-centered. My direction had been about me gaining notoriety, I had hoped, as a jazz drummer. But now... In that moment, as I sat staring at that chain link fence, uh, there was a real sense that my life now had been interrupted, that my life, in fact, had been invaded. Now I was beginning, at that moment, I was beginning the first steps, the baby steps, initial steps on the journey of turning away from those self-centered goals and turning toward a completely different path uh, on a different direction toward a new life goal, in fact, of promoting the fame of another, of Jesus Christ the Lord. If I can use the analogy, it's like my whole perspective had been traveling in a Brentward direction, and now, by the Lord's gracious intervention, I'd come to that moment of my turning around of my starting on the Christward direction. There is a verb in Hebrew, the verb shuv, whose basic range of meaning is to turn around, to repent. The word shuv has to do with making a 180 degree turn Um, either literally, physically, where you're walking in one direction and then you shove, walk in the opposite direction. Or the word can also refer 
to spiritual turning, turning from one's rebellion against God and toward his grace and his mercy. The word shuv appears eight times in the 10 verses that we plan to look at this morning. Eight times in Ruth chapter 1, verses 6 through 15. And when a word is that frequent in such a small span of verses, it becomes pretty obvious that the writer of the book wants us to pay attention to it. In this little section of Ruth, the word shuv, turn, becomes a very noteworthy motif. So then let's go back to the story of Ruth now. Let's see how this motif of turning plays out here. Just a quick recap from last Sunday, just so we're back into the Ruth mode. Uh, and we have uh, the help of another little diagram here. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, and her two sons, Machlon and Kilion, died when the family had been in Moab. As we mentioned last Sunday, half of the characters, half of the characters who are mentioned in the first five verses of Ruth die within those same five verses. So now as we get set up, uh, get set to approach uh, the sixth verse, verse six, Naomi, still in Moab, is left only with her two Moabite daughters-in-law with Ruth and Orpah. So let's go now to verse six. Then she, meaning Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to shuv, to return. So there's our first instance of that word shuv in the book of Ruth. Naomi, with Ruth and Orpah in tow, arises to shuv, to return from the country of Moab. And why did Naomi arise to return? Because, as the verse says, Naomi had heard in the fields of Moab, as she's working there, that Yahweh, the Lord, had visited his people, had visited his people back in Judah where Naomi had come from. Yahweh had visited his people and he had given them lachem. He had given them bread. Or as it's translated here in the ESV, Yahweh had given them food. So there was bread now back in the house of bread, in Beit Lachem, in Beth Lachem, and Naomi had heard reports of this. Now, three things briefly here about verse 6. First of all, as we read this verse very slowly, as we read it carefully, what we notice is that the stress here falls on the person of Naomi. It's Naomi who arises to shuv, to return to Judah, more than it is Ruth and Orpah making this decision to go to Judah. And it's Naomi who has heard about Yahweh visiting the fields of Judah with barley. So, so far, even though our book is called Ruth, uh, the story up to this point is really very much more about Naomi. The second thing to note here is how this verse puts a distance. It puts a distance between Naomi, who is from Israel, 
and the people of Israel. Notice this. A distance between Naomi from Israel and the people of Israel. Notice toward the end of the verse, it's not the Lord had visited Naomi's people and had given Naomi's people bread. Rather, we need to pick up on these cues in the narrative, it's this. The Lord had visited his people and had given them food. Almost as if Naomi is currently an outsider looking into Israel. As Christopher Ashe puts it, he says, Naomi hears of God visiting Israel as an outsider. The Lord provided food for them, but not for her. Well, in third place here, it's very important to mention that in this same part of the verse, highlighted there in yellow, we have one of only two explicitly mentioned actions of the Lord in the entire book of Ruth. So here, the Lord had visited the people of Israel with lachem, with bread. This is a direct action of Yahweh. Now, we argued last Sunday that more than likely, God had acted to bring about the famine in Judah, which had driven Naomi and family into Moab in the first place. Now here in verse 6, it's very important for us to notice this, the same Lord who had brought the famine now ends the famine. So that verse 6 essentially reverses verse 1. Verse 6 reverses verse 1. There is God's mercy after his judgment. Now God visits his people with bread. And that verb, visited, here in the verse, it has to do with a sort of divine inspection visit a divine inspection visit. The idea is that God evaluated whether the people deserved further judgment for their rebellion or whether it was time for him to pour out his grace and his relief. And God's decision was grace and relief. God decided to replenish the land with lachem, with bread. God decided to bring Israel from a place of emptiness now to a place of harvest. I love to read Psalm 65 verses 9 and 10 as I meditate on God's action here in Ruth 1 verse 6. Ruth's great-grandson David wrote these words in Psalm 65 and he wrote them about God. David said, You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. Now, as we read those verses, isn't God 
just simply delightful. Isn't he wonderful? He gives mercy here in our story of Ruth, gives bread back to the land after the judgment of the famine. Let's go to verse 7. So she, Naomi, set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to Shuv to return to the land of Judah. So here we have our second instance in the Hebrew text of the word Shuv. Now Naomi and company literally turn from Moab, and they set out toward Judah. So using our little pictorial again, the situation now looks as it does at the bottom of the the slide there. Notice that Judah, I've put it now in green, uh, it's replenished now. The Lord has ended the famine. Hallelujah. And the three women have now turned away from Moab and they are heading toward the promised land of God. And do take note of something interesting in this verse. It's very interesting. The verse says that they, notice that, they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. They, meaning, of course, Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah, all three women. So all three women return together to Judah. But the problem is, Although it makes sense for the narrator to say that Naomi returned to Judah, since, of course, Naomi had come from Judah in the first place, how does it make sense for the narrator to to say that Ruth and Orpah were returning to Judah since Ruth and Orpah had never been to Judah, as far as we know? After all, these two women were Moabites, weren't they? Moabites who had been in Moab all of this time. So what's this business of Ruth and Orpah returning to Judah? Well, we can look at it in this way. Ever since the moment in Genesis chapter 13, when Lot had separated from Abraham, the people of Lot, the Moabites, had been in a far country, as it were. But now we have two Moabite women going toward the land that had been promised to Abraham. So that in a real sense now, Lot's people, these two Moabite women, they have purpose to reintegrate with the people of Abraham. They are returning in this way to Israel. This is like a return home of sorts for these Moabite women, a return of the prodigals, if we want to put it that way. Well, let's travel forward with them in verse 8. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, shuv, return each of you to her mother's house. May Yahweh Deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Ruth and Orpah had turned with Naomi from Moab toward Judah. But now Naomi thinks that Ruth and Orpah should shuv, should turn back again, go back to Moab. Return to your biological mom's house. 
she says. After all, I'm just your mother-in-law. Go back to your Moabite kinfolk, your Moabite family. Return to your Moabite traditions and your Moabite special days and your Moabite national holidays and your Moabite religious customs and your Moabite music and cuisine. It's just common sense for the two of you to go back to everything that is familiar to you. And then Naomi offers a prayer over her her two daughters-in-law. She prays this way. May Yahweh, in other words, may my God, the God of Judah, the God of Israel, may he deal kindly with you, Ruth, and with you, Orpah, as you both have dealt with the dead and with me. Now we need to see this. This is a big moment in the story, a big moment in the story. Naomi Praise that Yahweh, God of Israel, will deal kindly with Ruth and Orpah. The, the Hebrew word here, very important, the Hebrew word behind deal kindly is the word chesed. And chesed is a major theme in the book of Ruth. Now in English, it's difficult to capture the sort of full-orbed meaning uh, of chesed in a single word, but chesed, we need to understand, is a relational word. Chesed has to do with kindness that is expressed that goes beyond obligation. Kindness expressed that goes beyond obligation. Chesed has to do with a faithful, loyal, compassionate, loving kindness that escapes the bounds of duty or the bounds of obligation. This is an above and beyond sort of kindness. Chesed. Naomi prays here that God's chesed would fall on the heads of Ruth and Orpah in the same way that Ruth and Orpah themselves had operated in chesed toward Naomi, toward Machlon, toward Kilion, and toward Elimelech. As an Israelite, Naomi knows, because she grew up reading the Israelite scriptures, she knows Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, where God himself described himself as abounding in chesed. Abounding in steadfast love is usually the way that that verse is translated in English Bibles, but the word in Hebrew is chesed. Naomi knows this about God, and so she invokes that divine chesed, that abounding loving kindness of God. She invokes it upon the heads of Ruth and Orpah, her daughters-in-law. Now, Naomi better be careful what she prays for. (laughs) It just might come to pass in our story that God will indeed pour out his chesed, his loving kindness on Ruth in particular. Watch what you pray for. 
Well, let's go forward in the story to verse 9 now, where Naomi is still praying. Isn't this a wonderful part of scripture? Naomi prays, Yahweh grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Ruth and Orpah, after this terrible time that we've been walking through, each of us losing our husbands, you, my daughters-in-law, you need rest. You both need rest. May God grant you rest. Go back to Moab, find new husbands, and rest secure in Moab with your new families and with the familiarity of everything that you grew up with. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. All three women cried hard here, right there on the road. These three women, think of it, they had been together for over a decade now. There were plenty of memories that they had shared together. There was a bond that existed between the three of them. There was love. How could they possibly separate like this at this moment? And Ruth and Orpah said to Naomi, No, we will shuv. We will return with you to your people. So here we have our fourth instance now of that word shuv. Can you start to see, with the repetition of this word, how this part of the story is concerned with the question, which way will you turn? Ruth and Orpah say, we don't want to turn back to Moab, mom. We want to turn with you toward Israel. Verse 11, but Naomi said, Shuv, <laughs> there it is again, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? And we pause right here for a sort of commercial break. Before we go forward in the story, we have to do a little bit of work in another part of scripture in Deuteronomy chapter 25. If we don't do this work, I think we will miss uh, what's going on in this next part of the story. So let's take a moment or two now in Deuteronomy chapter 25. In verses five through 10 of that chapter, we have details of what is called leveret law. Leveret law. The word lever, which makes up the first part of that word, it's a Latin word that means brother-in-law. So this is brother-in-law law in ancient Israel. The basic idea of leveret law was this, and I want you to listen. If you were an Israelite married woman and your husband died before the two of you had a son, it was then the responsibility of your unmarried brother-in-law to marry you and to father a son with you 
so that the name of your deceased husband would continue and so that the land that had been allotted to you, to your family, would stay in the family and so that you yourself as a widow in this ancient society would be cared for until the end of your life. I'm going to give that to you one more time because it's a crucial piece for us to grasp as we try to understand the next verses of Ruth. So here it is one more time. Again, Leverett Law, Deuteronomy 25, said that if you were an Israelite married woman and your husband died before the two of you could have a son, it was then the responsibility of your unmarried brother-in-law to marry you and to father a son with you so that the name of your deceased husband would continue, and so that the land that had been allotted to your family would stay in the family, and so that you yourself as a widow in this ancient society would be cared for until the end of your life. Here's the problem in our story of Ruth. We have three widows, Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah. In the case of two of those widows, both Ruth and Orpah, their husbands had died before Ruth and Orpah had sons, and those two brothers, or sorry, those two husbands were brothers. They had been brothers. There were no other brothers which meant that Ruth and Orpah had no option of seeking a brother-in-law in the family to marry. Machlon and Kilion had had no other brothers. If Ruth and Orpah were to each of them remarry a brother-in-law in this family, their only hope was that Naomi would quickly remarry and then in menopause, somehow become pregnant again with twin sons, and then Ruth and Orpah would then have to wait for many years, of course, until those twin sons were marrying age, at which point Ruth and Orpah would themselves be into menopause and would be unable to bear sons. So the upshot of all this is that the situation, for all intents and purposes, seemed rather impossible. Hence Naomi's common sense, practical advice to Ruth and to Orpah that they return to Moab, that they find Moabite husbands, that they settle down in their Moabite homeland with their Moabite families for the remainder of their lives. Naomi was essentially saying to Ruth and to Orpah, have you both really counted the cost of following me into Judah? Well, now we're in a position, I think, to listen to Naomi as she continues to speak to Ruth and Orpah in verses 11 through 13. Naomi, with Deuteronomy 25, Leverett Law in mind, she says to her daughters-in-law, Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may become your husbands? 
Shuv. Turn back, my daughters. Go your way. For I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and bear and should bear sons, would the two of you therefore wait till those sons were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying until that time? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of Yahweh has gone out against me. Shuv, Ruth and Orpah, go back, turn back to Moab. It just makes good sense to do that. The game is over as concerns me bearing sons for you to marry. The game is over as concerns your ability, Ruth and Orpah, to have sons of your own with my make-believe sons. Nothing is possible here. Go back, carry on, and build a new life back in Moab. And do notice here, friends, Naomi's read of her relationship with God at this moment. At the close of verse 13, Naomi gives us her theological interpretation of what has happened in her life. Listen to what she says. The hand of Yahweh has gone out against me. Well, That might be a true statement as far as it goes. We suggested last Sunday that perhaps it was, perhaps it was disobedience on Elimelech's part to have brought his family over to Moab in the first place. So the question is, was all Naomi's trouble God's judgment for that? Naomi thinks so. She thinks so. The hand of Yahweh has gone out against me. At least we can say Naomi still believes that God is relating to her somehow. But you see what Naomi is not allowing for here is that the same God, I want you to listen, The same God who brings judgment and emptiness is also the God who brings mercy and fullness. Yes? One more time. The same God who brings judgment and emptiness is also the God who brings mercy and fullness. Wasn't it true that the same God who'd brought famine in Naomi's homeland had now brought bread back to the land? Well, if that was true of God, could it not be true for Naomi at the personal level of her own life that God would do something similar? Could not God bring blessing and plenty to this currently destitute, embittered woman? Could he not do that? Could not could God not work? Life out of death. Could he not bring joy out of sadness? 
healing out of pain. And can he do that in your situation? You bet he can. You bet he can. And I can testify that he has done that in my own life. Well, let's go to our final two verses this morning. Verse 14. Now we have more travailing. We have more lament here. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. They wept here because simply they are overcome with emotion. What to do here in this moment? Which way to turn? Naomi's logic just makes so much sense. And yet there's this loving bond between the women. They weep loudly. The verse continues, And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. So this is a tender goodbye kiss that Orpah gives to Naomi. Now it's interesting in Jewish Midrash, a connection is made here between the name Orpah and the Hebrew word Orep, which is neck. The rabbi said here that Orpah is a fitting name. Why? Because she turns her Orep, she turns her neck on her mother-in-law and heads back to Moab. Orep, Orpah. Well, whatever the case, we might very well say here, we might very well say that Orpah, in fact, does the sensible thing. She listens to Naomi's voice. Orpah counts the cost, and she decides that it is a losing situation, a losing prospect to head into Judah with Naomi. But Ruth, says the text, Ruth clung to Naomi. Now the word clung here is the same word that we have in Genesis 2.24, where the man in that verse is to cleave to his wife, to hold fast to his wife. Same word. This is about Ruth grabbing hold and essentially sticking to Naomi. Verse 15 Probably as Ruth clings to her, we can just imagine the scene, Naomi, as Ruth is clinging to her, she points over at Orpah. Orpah is now already several feet down the road back toward Moab. And Naomi says to Ruth, see, your sister-in-law has shoved. The word is there again, has shoved. Orpah has gone back to her people and to her gods. So now you, Ruth, Shove, shove after, return after your sister-in-law. Now here's a huge moment again in the story. There are quite literally here, friends, eternal matters at stake, eternal matters. Because you see, if Ruth does the sensible thing here and releases her grip on Naomi and then runs, crying, catching up with Orpah, going back to Moab, if she does that, the whole story of redemption in the Bible changes. This is a huge moment. What will Ruth do here? Which way will she shove? Which way will she turn? Will Ruth heed the common sense that Naomi has presented? Will Ruth follow after Orpah? Or will Ruth be like 
Abraham, who had gone from the familiarity of his own land into the unknown promised land? Will she be Abrahamic in this moment? Next Sunday, stay tuned. Uh, We will spend time with verses 16 through 18, which many of us know very well. Uh, They give us the next tremendous moment of this very tremendous story. Well, this morning, we have taken notice of a few themes in this section of Ruth. For one thing, that theme of shuv, to turn around, to repent. Eight times in these 10 verses, the the, the verb shuv has appeared. So there is this question that comes up in the story. The question is, which way will the characters turn? Will they turn toward Judah, toward the God of Judah, or will they turn back toward Moab? Which way will they turn? Well, the question for each of us who hear the word of God this morning is, which way are we turning right now? Which way are we turning right now? Naomi had heard about Lachem. She had heard about bread back in the land of Judah. And so she turned from Moab toward Judah where the bread is. In the story of the prodigal son, when the prodigal is out on his own, hungry, far away from his father's house, he thinks to himself, this is Luke 15, 17, he thinks to himself that there is more than enough bread back where his father is. And so the prodigal son decides to end his wild living and turn, return, shuv back to his father in repentance. Well, friends, what about us? Are we turning toward bread? In this life, some of us come to a place where we are quite simply done with our Moab. We're done with godless living. We come to the end of ourselves and we're ready to shuv. We're ready to turn toward Jesus who is the bread of life. Maybe you're a person watching who like me back on that February night at the age of 20, you've reached the end of self. And now you have a strange and deep desire to turn to God, to turn to Jesus. Even though you realize that it may cost you something to do so, But the call to turn to Jesus is irresistible. Well, I just encourage you to hold out the empty hand of faith and receive God's gracious gift of the bread of life. Receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Come to the bread of life. Come under his blood-stained cross, come under the cross in repentance over your sins, turning from your sins, turning toward him, and there you will find his cleansing 
and his forgiveness. And I encourage you to not wait on that, but to do it this very day. In our passage this morning, we also touched briefly on another big theme in Ruth, the theme of chesed or kindness. We're going to see this theme surface uh, at several points in the story in coming weeks. We will see in the story the kindness of God, of course, and we'll see kindness that is acted out by the characters, the human characters in the story. Well, as we close today, I want you to consider the supreme kindness, the supreme kindness of God toward you and I in giving us his son, Jesus. Listen with me to Titus chapter three, verses four and five, which put it like this. When the goodness and loving kindness of God, our savior appeared, loving kindness of God, our savior appeared. When the chesed of God, our savior appeared, he saved us. He delivered us mightily, didn't he, from our great spiritual famine. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Kindness, chesed, was wrapped up in the coming of the person of Jesus. And As Chris Wright has put it, I love this. He says, Jesus himself is, Jesus himself is kindness incarnate, kindness on two legs. He is so kind. With the mind-blowing kindness, chesed, that God has shown us in the birth, life, atoning death, and resurrection of his son, You and I are called upon today, we are called upon this week to be chesed people, to love chesed, to go out of our way to show chesed, to proactively show God's kindness to our neighbor. Where? In our homes, in our workplaces, which right now might be our homes, on social media on the street, wherever it is that we are. This is a kindness, again, that goes above and beyond what might be expected. And friends, if there is any group of people who should be known for such kindness, it's the church. And right now, our world, on so many levels, is crying out for kindness. Micah 6, verse 8, God's people are to love kindness, to love it, to actually have a passionate affection for kindness. Zechariah 7, verse 9, God's people are to show kindness, to to put feet on kindness, to display kindness. So love kindness, Micah 6, 8, show kindness, Zechariah 7, verse 9. Galatians 5, 22 One of the segments of the fruit of the Spirit is kindness. Ephesians 4.32, we are commanded by the Spirit to be kind to one another. What a witness to our quaking world if we could become known far and wide as a community of unusual kindness. If when people thought of kindness, 
their minds, what is kindness, they're thinking, and their minds go first to the church of Jesus Christ. Wouldn't that be an amazing witness? The kind of kindness that God asks of us and requires of us does not come naturally. You need to know that. It does not come naturally to any of us. We must seek the Spirit for it, after all, because it's His kindness. It's His kindness that we are to display. So I want to invite you and encourage you to spend time in prayer this week, and so will I, asking God to work His kindness in us in the hope that when we go and show kindness toward others, those people will be attracted to the same bread of life that we are feasting on. Let's pray together. Oh Lord God, there is so much here in this text of Ruth for us to hear, to digest, uh, and then to go and be animated about, to live out toward our neighbor, whoever our neighbor is. Father God, we thank you so much for the kindness that you have shown us and continue to show us. We thank you, Lord God, that you are recreating us to be the people of Jesus Christ, transforming us to be in his image and acting in the kindness on two legs uh, who Jesus was, to act in that same kindness. Father God, we thank you also that you are the one who has called us, if we are believers, to turn, to turn away from our sin, to repent and turn toward you. We thank you that that is a work that you have done in our lives. We love you because you first loved us. Father, go with us this week. Walk with us closely. Help us to be lights of your goodness, faithfulness, love, and loving kindness to a world that is so desperately hurting. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hi there, and welcome back. Welcome to this limited edition set of 1225 live episodes. Today I'm coming to you uh, from the basement of my house, actually. And what we're doing here, just to remind you again, is we're providing extended discussions on the preaching passages that we are working through in our current sermon series on the book of Ruth. Every Monday, 12 p.m., we'll be back here for these brief episodes. Yesterday, in our sermon on Ruth chapter 1, verses 6 through 15, we were in the part of the story where Naomi and Ruth and Orpah are now heading back from Moab toward Judah, and Naomi tries very hard to persuade both Ruth and Orpah to return, to go back to the land of Moab. Now, all I want to do here today is to hopefully show you uh, something of the thickness, the richness of the Bible, to show you how that part of the Ruth story connects beautifully with other parts of the scriptures. And so we begin here by noting uh, the many interesting parallels between that part of the Ruth story, Ruth 1 through uh, 6 through 15, and another story later that happens later in the history of Israel in scripture, and that's the story of David coming out of Jerusalem, uh, trying to, to escape uh, his son Absalom, 2 Samuel chapter 15. Now, 
Starting with the story of Ruth, the, the section again that we looked at yesterday in the sermon, let's just talk about the basics of what we have there. We have this Judean woman, Naomi, who is now coming out of Moab, going back toward Judah, with her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, are with her. And Naomi, the Judean, is trying to persuade these two foreign women, these two Moabites, trying to discourage them from going with her and continuing with her over to Judah. Well, when we consider 2 Samuel chapter 15, uh, what do we have there? We have another Judean person, this time David, and David is actually traveling in the opposite direction from where Naomi had been traveling. In David's case, he's traveling out of Judah, out of Jerusalem, and as he travels, David is trying to persuade a foreigner, in this case a foreign man, named Ittai, who is a Philistine. David is trying to persuade Ittai to go back to not follow David any further. And if you remember from yesterday's sermon, if you were with us, uh, three or four times as Naomi and Ruth and Orpah are traveling on the road, Naomi says to her daughters-in-law, Shuv, that is, return, go back, stop following me. Well, in the case of David in 2 Samuel 15, very interestingly, he uses the word shuv a couple of times talking to Ittai, telling Ittai, go back, stop following me. So definite parallels here between these two stories. Well, as it turned out, in Ittai's case, he was not persuaded by David. Listen to what he says in 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 21. Ittai says to David, As Yahweh lives, as my lord the king lives, wherever my lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And of course, what Ittai says there to David bears striking similarities with what the foreigner Ruth says to Naomi in the book of Ruth chapter 1. Listen to what the foreigner Ruth says to Naomi. She says, where you, very famously, where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May Yahweh do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. So the foreigner Ruth and the foreigner Ittai, in both stories, they sound very similar to one another. Uh, both of them pledge steadfast allegiance to a Judean. Both of them invoke the name Yahweh as they are talking to their respective Judeans. And both of them also, in these passages, talk about being loyal to death. Now, fanning out, going out even broader in the canon of Scripture, what's interesting is this, that on this very same plot of ground, essentially, that David and Ittai are standing on having their conversation, much, much later on in the time of Jesus, Peter and the disciples are standing virtually on the same piece of, of ground, and they say, say this to Jesus. This is Matthew 26, verse 35. It says this, Peter said to Jesus, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. 
and all the disciples said the same. So here we have Peter, who is an uh, Israelite himself. He's also, just like Ruth, just like Ittai, he's pledging allegiance to a Judean, to the person of Jesus. In Peter's case, of course, we know he failed, didn't he? He failed to live up to his pledge, but Jesus ended up being so sweetly merciful to him after Peter's denial. But now in the case of both Ruth and Ittai, both of them ended up living up to the pledges that they had made, in fact. In Ruth's case, of course, she stays steadfastly loyal to Naomi and is richly rewarded for that. In Ittai's case, his loyalty to David was rewarded with David making Ittai uh, the leader of an entire battalion in 2 Samuel 18, verse 2. Now, in this very trialsome period of time that we are all living through right now, it is a tremendous blessing, is it not, if we have in our lives Ittai's, Ruth's, loyal friends, people who stick with us even in the darkest hours of our lives. And it's also good for us to work at being a Ruth or an Ittai, someone who is a loyal friend, someone who is enduringly faithful to a friend who is walking through a very dark hour. Now, fair-weather friends, of course, they come and go, right? But who can you identify in your life who is not a fair-weather friend, who is like an Atai or like a Ruth? Do you have somebody like that in your life? If you have been blessed that way, I would just encourage you to thank God, because that person actually is God's gift to you. Thank God for that person, and also maybe pick up the phone or get on Messenger and just send the person a message or talk to them and say, hey, uh, this is what you mean in my life. I love you. Thanks for being such a loyal friend. And finally, do be praying uh, for God's help in becoming an imitator of Jesus. Jesus, in terms of friendship, he is the friend who sticks closer than a brother. All of us want to be transformed into his image daily, which means becoming better friends to those around us. So be blessed this week, cherish your friends, and we will see you next Monday, Lord will.